Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. This is Dan Ambinder here, and we are so excited to share this next Cardio Nerds case report episode where University of Minnesota cardiology fellows join Amit and Karn for a riveting discussion about a case where they were pressured to diagnose a young woman with syncope. With this episode, the Cardio Nerds family warmly welcomes the University of Minnesota to the Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll. As a reminder, Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll programs are a collection of cardiology fellowship programs across the United States that support and foster the CardioNerd spirit and mission of democratizing cardiovascular education. Honor Roll programs nominate fellows who are highly motivated and are passionate about medical education. The University of Minnesota Fellowship Program Director, Dr. Jane Chen, has nominated Dr. Julie Power for this position. In addition to being a CardioNerds ambassador, Julie has already done amazing work with the CardioNerds platform as part of the CardioNerds Academy Fellowship, and we are just really Really excited about future collaborations with Julie. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Hi, I'm Julie Power, and I'm one of the Cardio Nerds Academy Fellows for this year. I'm currently a second year cardiology fellow at the University of Minnesota, aka the U. And I'm excited to say that I'll be staying at the U for my Interventional Cardiology Fellowship. When I'm not working, I enjoy skiing and exploring Minnesota with my boyfriend, who's an orthopedic surgeon specializing in foot and ankle surgery. You could say we put our heart and soul into our relationship. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Abdisamit Ibrahim. I'm a first-year fellow at the University of Minnesota. I'm also interested in interventional cardiology. My favorite hobby is spending time with my family, my wife, Ayan, and my son, Zaid, who is two and a half years old. And the rest of the time, I like to play soccer. And I'm a big fan of the English Premier League, and I support the Arsenal Football Club. Hi, I'm Sasha Prisco. I am a third-year cardiology fellow at the University of Minnesota. I'm in the Physician Scientist Training Program, so right now I am a postdoctoral research fellow in a basic science lab studying the mechanisms of right ventricular dysfunction and pulmonary arterial hypertension. In my free time, I enjoy spending time with my husband, who is also a cardiology fellow in the Physician Scientist Training Program here at the University of Minnesota, and we enjoy spending time with our dog. I also enjoy biking and attending spin class. So Julie, Sasha, Abdi Summit, this is an extra special case for us, and as most of our CNCRs are. But just adding a little bit of extra specialness is the fact that we have Julie Power here, one of our Cardio Nerds Academy fellows, introducing us to her institution and a wonderful case here. So all of you, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And for those of you that are listening, you may hear a three-month-old in the background. My daughter was, has decided to join the podcast today. You know, I tried to put her asleep before the podcast recording, but I told her that there's a case from the U and she decided, nope, I got to listen in on this. So she is joining today. And all of us, Amit, myself, Ava, really want to know where should we go for this case today? So thanks, Karin. I think that for our case, a great place to go with families since you brought Ava is the Minnesota State Fair. 
Obviously, it didn't happen this year because of the pandemic, but we can plan to be there post-pandemic once things have gone back to normal more. There's food and fun rides and lots of people from all over the state. So it's a great way to eat and uh, walk your way through Minnesota. I love it. There is so much to be excited about for this discussion. It's our first foray into the U. We're hanging out at the state fair. Can't wait to learn from Sasha and Abdisamad. Julie, it is so special for us to finally have you on the show as an Academy Fellow, but after this episode, also as the ambassador from the U as the University of Minnesota joins us on the Healy Cardinals Honorable Program. Also super excited to play with Ava Kern. Thank you for bringing her along. And also to be excited for is this fabulous case. So let's dive in, guys. What do we have? Okay, we have a 35-year-old female with no significant past medical history, who presented to a local hospital with shortness of breath and syncope. She was walking down the stairs of her apartment when she started to feel short of breath. This has been typical for her for the past two to three years, and she usually needs to stop and rest after walking about one block. She also notes intermittent chest heaviness when the shortness of breath and dyspnea is particularly severe. When walking down the stairs this day, she became more symptomatic with dizziness and apparently sat down and passed out for about 30 seconds. There was no evidence of tongue biting, urination, or seizure-like activity during her syncopal episode. A bystander called 911 and she was brought to a local ER. In the ER, she denied any medical or surgical history, takes no meds, and has no allergies. Family history is negative for stroke, structural heart disease, and sudden death. Socially, she was born in Somalia and moved to the U.S. as a child. She lives with her mother, father, and two brothers, but she has been unable to work for several years due to her symptoms. She also endorses an unintentional 30-pound weight loss over the past year. So, Abdi, maybe you can go through the differential diagnosis of syncope with us. Okay, Julie, I'll be happy to. Syncope is a sudden transient loss of consciousness associated with absence of postural tone followed by complete and usually rapid recovery. I like the schema illustrated by the Clinical Problem Solvers podcast that divides syncope into three categories. One, reflex syncope, two, orthostatic syncope, and three, cardiac syncope. So reflex syncope encompasses vasovagal syncope, situational syncope like the age-old story of the medical student passing out in the OR, on his first day of the rotation, and others like crowded hypersensitivity. This all come with the prodromal symptoms like dizziness, lightheadedness, nausea prior to syncopizing. Next, we'll talk about orthostatic syncope. Orthostasis occurs when the systolic blood pressure drops more than 20 millimeters mercury or the diastolic blood pressure drops more than 10 millimeters mercury. We most commonly think of dehydration or hypovolemia causing orthostasis. Being postprandial can do this as well. There are certain medications that cause uh, orthostatic hypertension, such as blood pressure medications, alpha blockers for PPH, and uh, TCAs as well. You can also have decreased autonomic function from neurodegenerative diseases like Huntington's disease, Parkinson's, or Guillain-Barré syndrome. Other systemic diseases that can also cause syncope are diabetes, amyloidosis, and alcoholic neuropathies. Finally, we come to the cardiac causes of syncope. So arrhythmias like high-degree AV block, SVTs, 
VTs can cause uh, syncope. There are also other structural causes like aortic stenosis, cardiac tamponade, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pulmonary embolism, and pulmonary hypertension as well that can cause syncope. Other diagnoses that do not meet the definition of syncope but have overlapping symptoms and are often ruled out at the same time with history are seizures, stroke, and hypoglycemia. Applying this to our patient, I don't think she was having any situation, situational syncope, but orthostasis and cardiac syncope are still very much in contention. So, Abdusama, that's a great breakdown for causes of syncope. This is such a common presentation we see all the time. I tend to break down cardiac syncope further into electrical cardiac or rhythmic cardiac, as well as obstructive cardiac. And I do that because the, the, the presentation, the background symptoms, the evaluation, and the management will all end up being different, right? And so the electrical cardiac syncope is a type of syncope where, you know, the patient is fine, there's no prodrome, and they're fine until they're not, right? They fall down with little or no warning. And this might be a patient because they had no warning who didn't, you know, sort of reflexively protect themselves. They come in with head trauma, laceration in the forehead, that kind of thing, right? And so there, your your spidey senses are up for something like a malignant ventricular arrhythmia or even an SVT in a patient with structural causes that can't tolerate an SVT or something like a conduction issue. In contrast to that, obstructive cardiac syncope, in my mind, are all the obstructive issues, whether it's dynamic, like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or it's fixed, like aortic stenosis, subaortic stenosis, mitral stenosis. I'll include pulmonary embolism and even pulmonary hypertension in that, all because it's all just blood having a hard time getting from A to Z. And in that context, a patient may have prodromal symptoms and they may have a background history of symptoms, where if you can imagine if a patient has fixed aortic stenosis, unlike a patient with just, you know, intermittent malignant arrhythmia, a patient with aortic stenosis, a mitral stenosis, a pulmonary hypertension, etc., they may have symptoms of exertional intolerance or lightheadedness or angina and things like that in the past. So my approach is a little bit different. So to summarize, if we, if we expand that out a little bit, we'll have orthostatic syncope, neurocardiogenic syncope, electrical cardiac, and obstructive cardiac. And so in this setting, this patient does have some background symptoms of exertional intolerance in the past. And so I'm curious to see which way this will go, but my alarm bells are certainly ringing here, right? This isn't a patient who was completely fine and well until she wasn't. She's got some symptoms that we're going to need to tease apart and consider in the background of trying to figure out why she's syncopizing now. Ameth, I totally agree with you, what you just mentioned here. And I think what's important here and what the wonderful team at the U has done as they've defined where we're going to begin thinking about this patient. They said, this is syncope. Let's build our differential based on this finding of syncope. And I think that's a great starting point. But we also have to ask ourselves, as you guys all are doing, is syncope plus what else? The what else for this patient is the fact that she's young. She's also had two to three years of exertional dyspnea, and now she's having it so progressive that it's functionally limiting her. And then we also have to add that 30-pound unintentional weight loss. And those factors begin to, again, we all have our spidey senses up about this patient, about what else is going on. And for me, this firmly fits, at least as far as we've gotten to this point in this category of cardiac syncope. It's not just because we're on the Cardio Nerds podcast, but we're placing this patient that had exertional dyspnea for two, three years, now syncopized. Makes me think of a cardiac output issue. But the question now, as Amethan mentioned, is this electrical or obstructive? Is the reason this patient syncopized because they have some level of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that's been going on for many years, undiagnosed, and then they suffered a ventricular event? 
So I'm interested to hear what's next, but also have to pay close, close attention to that weight loss. Is there an underlying malignancy that we have missing? Does a patient have lymphoma and they've developed some level of pericardial effusion and then led to obstruction and then they passed out? So all of that context is really going to inform those next steps and next pieces of information that we gain. So Julie, do you want to give us some more information? Of course. In the local ER, they did a point of care ultrasound and were concerned for RV dysfunction. So they transferred her to the University of Minnesota and she was admitted to our heart failure service. When I met her, her vital signs were afebrile, her blood pressure was 107 over 71, heart rate 65, respiratory rate 20, and she was satting 91% on 15 liters oxymask. She weighed 98 pounds. Her general appearance was a thin female with temporal wasting, and she was tired appearing. Respiratory-wise, she was, like I said, she was able to speak in full sentences on 15 liters of oxymask and appeared relatively comfortable. However, she would desaturate with minimal movement. Her lungs were clear to auscultation with no wheezes or crackles. Cardiovascular exam, she had a regular rate and rhythm, a three out of six holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border. She had an S1, but a louder S2, and her JVP was at 12 with a large V wave. GI, she had positive bowel sounds, soft, non-tender, and non-distended. Skin, no rashes or jaundice, and one plus lower extremity edema to the knees. She was alert and oriented times three with fluent speech and moving all four extremities equally and no focal deficits. So Julie, this was a phenomenal physical exam. We just got a lot of interesting data. And I, I recall when we were looking at your application for the CardioNerds Academy, one thing that really stuck with us is how interested you were in educating people about listening for murmurs and putting them in the clinical context and whatnot. So I'd love to hear how you break down this physical exam in the context of this patient. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I think with the exam that she had, uh, a couple important things to focus on are obviously the cardiovascular exam, but then how we tie in other parts of the exam. What I would start with is the fact that she had a murmur. And of course, I start here because this is what you were saying, I enjoy the most. But she had a systolic murmur, and it was at the left lower sternal border. So when I think of murmurs, I divide them into systolic and diastolic murmurs and go from there. So when we think of systolic murmurs, you have your aortic stenosis and pulmonic stenosis, and then mitral regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation. So looking at this murmur, we hear it best at the left lower sternal border. So that would make us more suspicious for either tricuspid regurgitation or mitral regurgitation. Mitral regurgitation is more typically heard best at the apex. So I think this would be in all likelihood a tricuspid regurgitation murmur. And there's other things that would make me think that as well. And I'll go through that. Aortic stenosis is best heard at the right upper sternal border. So that's not where we are during the exam. And it tends to be a harsher murmur than the holosystolic murmurs of TR or mitral regurgitation. And then pulmonic stenosis, we typically see in more congenital patients. And she's young, so she could have a congenital abnormality. But again, it's not necessarily in the right area. And there's other exam findings that make me think this is probably tricuspid regurgitation. 
So the next thing on the cardiovascular exam that makes me suspicious, one, that it's tricuspid regurgitation, but also hemodynamically significant tricuspid regurgitation in the right ventricle is the fact that she has a elevated JVP with a large V wave. So her JVP being elevated is one of our more specific signs of someone who is in right-sided heart failure and volume overloaded. And this is also supported by the fact that she has some lower extremity edema. So we know that she has some extra volume on the right side of her heart. Then we also look at the fact that she has a V wave on the exam. And this indicates that not only is she fluid overloaded on the right side, but also that she has probably some significant tricuspid regurgitation as well. So this, along with the location of the murmur, helps confirm for me that she does have tricuspid pathology going on. The other thing I'd like to add to this is that she has a loud S2 heart sound, which indicates that she probably has higher filling pressures on the right side of her heart and makes me suspicious that she has pulmonary hypertension of some degree going on. So for me, tying this whole exam together, it does make me suspicious that she has right-sided heart failure from some sort of pulmonary hypertension that's causing significant amounts of tricuspid regurgitation and fluid overload. Wow, Julie, that was next level. And I'm just thinking to myself, next time I'm moonlighting, I'm going to invest in one of those digital stethoscopes and just record everything I hear and send it over to you so you can help me dissect it out in real time. Just amazing. Beth, I wholeheartedly agree. I think I will be sending my heart sounds, murmurs, physical exam, and all of that to Julie to get a second opinion whenever in doubt. You know, I think another just quick point to make here is just how profound her vital signs are. And she's demonstrating that she's requiring 15 liters of oxygen and is a 91% for this young person. And then you're also mentioning just moving around in her bed, she's desaturating. And as Julie expertly went through, there's clearly signs of RV dysfunction, whether it be from volume, pressure, some combination. And putting that in the context of this patient, you know, one of the things that just jumped out quickly to me is heart rate 65. And I kept mentioning and we kept talking about, well, if we're thinking about syncope and this patient lost some level of cardiac output as our potential cause of the syncope, why is her heart rate 65? Why is it low for a patient that should technically be trying to compensate? And that makes me always wonder about pulmonary embolism in these kind of patients. Syncope and pulmonary embolism in a New England Journal trial, I believe in 2015, said that one out of six patients that present in the, this was an Italian study, I believe, presented with syncope. I always go back to that mechanism where there is a reflex parasympathetic action where the ventricle, specifically the LV, has less flow to it. It's underfilled. There's baroreceptors, mechanoreceptors that essentially get activated. And then you get a parasympathetic reflex where there's AV conduction block and potentially even dissociation, and you can syncopize. So I'm wondering, especially as we're starting to begin to think through about what to do next and the urgency of it, is there elementary embolism involved in this patient and that we have to act even more quickly? So I am interested to hear the labs and waiting uh, anxiously, along with my daughter here, Ava, about what's going to happen next. I think those are all really great points. So I'm happy to go through the labs. Surprisingly, they're going to be pretty much unremarkable. But I'll go through them specifically because I do think it's important to discuss them. 
In this era of COVID, the first test was a negative COVID test. CMP, CBC were all normal. Her lactate was normal at 0.7. And she had two negative high sensitivity troponins four hours apart. And HCG was negative. Can I ask real quick, I'm still thinking about weight loss, whether it's, you know, it's certainly in the background and whether or not it could be related to this presentation. And, you know, when I think about unintentional weight loss, I think, you know, is a food getting into the mouth, right? So is this an access issue? Is there, you know, food is getting into the mouth, but is there a problem with absorption? But if the food is getting into the mouth, the nutrients and calories are being absorbed, then there's some process that's using those calories and not allowing the patient to have anabolysis, right? They're not building muscle fat. They're not building themselves. And so, you know, of course you think, is it malignancy? Is it some other inflammatory state like like infection or autoimmune syndrome? But cause of just being in a metabolic overdrive would just be something like hyperthyroidism, which certainly can overlap with causes of heart failure. And this young woman with, you know, she's not tachycardic, but young woman with uh, apparent heart failure coming in with syncope and weight loss. Do we have a TSH? That's a great point, Amith. And we do. It was normal at 2.1. Ah, very good. Thank you. Her positive labs did include an elevated NT ProBNP at 2800 and a mildly elevated D dimer at 0.6. And the upper limit of normal at our institution is 0.5. So obviously, at this point, we're concerned about PE, like Curran mentioned. So we did obtain a chest x-ray, an EKG, and a CT. Her imaging studies, which can all be viewed on the CardioNerds website, showed a chest x-ray with prominent pulmonary arteries, no focal pulmonary opacities, pleural effusion, or pneumothorax. There were no other acute osseous or abdominal abnormalities either. She had a CT head as well that was negative and showed no signs of acute stroke or bleed. She had a CTA that was negative for acute pulmonary embolism, but did have markedly dilated right and left main pulmonary arteries with a dilated pulmonary trunk and a dilated right ventricle. There was no pericardial effusion and a normal caliber thoracic aorta. She also had an EKG that showed normal sinus rhythm, right axis deviation, right ventricular hypertrophy, and ST T-wave abnormalities in the anterior and inferior leads. So at this point, we were suspecting an undifferentiated pulmonary hypertension based on her symptoms of syncope, dyspnea, and this more specific findings on her chest x-ray, EKG, and CT showing right ventricular strain. So discussing specifics on this patient's EKG, she had right axis deviation. She also had right ventricular hypertrophy. And this is defined as right axis deviation plus an R to S ratio greater than one in lead V1 or an R wave greater than seven millimeters in lead one. She has both. Both of these are common findings in pulmonary hypertension. Right axis deviation is caused by several different things, including right ventricular hypertrophy, PE, and COPD. But it can also be a normal variant in children or thin adults with a more horizontal heart. Right ventricular hypertrophy can be seen in mitral stenosis, chronic lung disease, causing core pulmonale, and arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. The patient also has an RV strain pattern with significant ST segment and T wave inversion in leads V2 through V6 and in the inferior leads as well, which also points us towards pH. Generally, in pulmonary hypertension, you may also see right bundle branch block and right atrial enlargement on the EKG as well. 
So Julie, thank you so much for going through all the data and analyzing it so nicely within the context of the clinical presentation, right? And so stepping back, we've got a young woman with a history of exertional symptoms coming in with syncope. We've got a physical exam that shows that she is you know, profoundly hypoxemic and with an exam findings that point towards tricuspid regurgitation and possibly elevated pressures based on the loud S2. And these findings are largely consistent with the EKG showing uh, right ventricular hypertrophy and strain and CT scans showing an enlarged RV. And then in retrospect, the chest X-ray that shows an enlarged pulmonary knob and some subtle signs of RV and RA enlargement. So, you know, I think we started off Dissamat so beautifully talked about the differential diagnosis for syncope. And, you know, here at this point, based on this pr- just preliminary data we acquired just from the ED alone, we're pretty confident that this is a patient who probably has pulmonary hypertension with right-sided involvement. So at this point, we were rounding and awaiting the formal echo read. We were actually about to break for lunch when I saw the echo read come back. Sasha, can you go over the echo with us? So happy to, Julie. The echocardiogram is abnormal here. There's paradoxical septal motion consistent with RV pressure and volume overload. The RV is dilated. The right ventricle function is reduced. There's severe right atrial enlargement. There's moderate to severe tricuspid insufficiency. And the right ventricle systolic pressure is shockingly 188 millimeters of mercury above the right atrial pressure. Whoa, wait, wait, what, what was that? 188. I know, I was shocked too. That's, that, that, okay, that's impressive. That's, that's higher than our systemic blood pressure. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, keep, keep going. You have my attention. The bubble study is grossly positive. The IVC is dilated, so it's greater than 2.1 centimeters, and it collapses less than 50% with respiratory variation. So this suggests a right atrial pressure estimated at 15 millimeters of mercury or higher, and there's no pericardial effusion. Wow, Sasha, these are some really extreme findings on this echo. Can you go over them and tell us what they mean? Happy to. One of the major findings on this echo is that she has a pulmonary artery systolic pressure of 203 millimeters of mercury. Normal is usually less than 40 millimeters of mercury. This suggests that she has some sort of severe form of pulmonary hypertension. This is also supported by the fact that she has RV pressure and volume overload with a dilated right atrium and dilated right ventricle. Her IVC is dilated as well and does not collapse to respiratory variation and she has a right-to-left shunt by bubble study. Based on this echocardiogram, we don't yet know what type of pulmonary hypertension she has, but we do know this is a severe form of pulmonary hypertension. And it sounds like part negatives for this, you know, again, for this young patient with no known left-sided heart disease and no lung disease that we know about. An important cause, I think, would be adult congenital heart disease, right? But we haven't seen any, any evidence of shunting lesions like a VSD and ASD you know, in this context, one thing, it may be useful to get something like a cross-sectional imaging because it's easy to miss a sinus venosis AESD with a partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, for instance, but just something on the differential diagnosis that I'm curious to parse out. So I'd love to hear, how do you guys break down pulmonary hypertension and what are some of the next steps in a diagnosis, but then also management? Great question, Amit. So pulmonary hypertension is actually a broad diagnosis. There can be many different causes of pulmonary hypertension. So we often do an extensive evaluation to determine what is the cause of pulmonary hypertension. 
So first of all, pulmonary hypertension is defined as a mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. The World Health Organization defines five different classes of pulmonary hypertension. So group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension, which would be idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, heritable, or drug-induced. Oftentimes, they're associated with connective tissue disorders or HIV. Um, portal hypertension is also included in group one and pulmonary hypertension due to schistosomiasis. Group two pulmonary hypertension is due to left-sided heart disease. So that includes heart failure due to reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction or valvular disorders, such as aortic stenosis or mitral regurgitation. Group three pulmonary hypertension is due to lung disease. So that includes chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, ILD, sleep apnea, high altitude. So group four pulmonary hypertension is CTEPT, also known as chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And group 5 pulmonary hypertension are all the other causes of pulmonary hypertension. So we often categorize them as multifactorial. So that could be due to hematologic disorders, um, metabolic disorders, systemic disorders. So Julie, will you please tell us what happened next in the case? Sure, Sasha. So at this point, things moved pretty fast as we realized how sick she was. She was also hypoxic and having bradycardia which indicated to us that she was not perfusing her right coronary artery, which supplies the conduction system of the heart. The suspicion was that based on her age, she had WHO group one pulmonary arterial hypertension of some sort and needed immediate treatment. We took her down to the table of truth to confirm the diagnosis by right heart cath and get advanced access for treatment. In the cath lab, she actually became bagel with introduction of the swan sheath Good thing Abdisamad went over all the different forms of syncope. And we had to give her 0.5 milligrams of atropine to stabilize her. You could have heard a pin drop during the moment we waited for her vitals to recover. So in the cath lab, her heart rate was 83. Her blood pressure was 105 over 68 with a mean of 78. Her RA pressure was 5. Her RV pressure was 140 over 5. Her PA pressure was 140 over 80 with a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 100. Her pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 4. Her cardiac output was 3.7 with a cardiac index of 2.6. Her pulmonary vascular resistance was 26. And her systemic vascular resistance was 1900. We also did a vasodilator challenge with nitric oxide that was negative. Sasha, can you go over what these numbers mean and what to do next? Sure. These numbers help define that the patient has severe pulmonary arterial hypertension. With the new 6th World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension is now defined as a mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury. Before that, it was 25 millimeters of mercury. Hers is shockingly 100 millimeters of mercury. One of the things we know in PAH is that if the patient is vasodilator responsive, we have an additional treatment option, which is a calcium channel blocker. So in our lab, we give inhaled nitric oxide to see if this helps the pulmonary arteries relax and decreases the pulmonary artery pressure. A positive response is defined as a decrease in mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury to an absolute value less than 40 without a decrease in cardiac output. In our patient's case, the vasodilator test was negative, so a calcium channel blocker would not have been appropriate in her management. Her pulmonary 
mean pressure is 100 millimeters of mercury, but her wedge is only four, right? So I think we can say based on the lack of structural changes on the left side and these pressures that this certainly is in group two pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, you're right. This is pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension. So there are two numbers that you look at to distinguish whether or not this is pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, or combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. And those numbers are the wedge pressure and PBR. So when the wedge pressure is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, you have two options. That's either isolated post-capillary pulmonary hypertension or combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. So for isolated post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, the wedge pressure is greater than 15 and the PBR is less than 3. When the wedge pressure is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury and the PBR is greater than 3, that's combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. So in our case, the wedge pressure is less than 15 and the PBR is greater than 3. So this is isolated pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, so your patient clearly has severe, isolated, pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension. The thresholds for wedge we were using was 15, and hers is 4 millimeters of mercury. And the threshold for PVR we were using was 3, and her PVR is 26 woods units, which is out of this world. You know, we said it's not post-capillary, it's not group 2 pulmonary hypertension, but we still have four other groups. What were the next steps in differentiating where she lands so that way we can think about the appropriate treatment? Because of course, as we learned before, the treatment for group 4 or CTEF is markedly different from the treatment for group 1, for instance. So that's a good question. Our echocardiogram ruled out left-sided heart disease, and also our cath results with the wedge pressure less than 15 also ruled out left-sided heart disease. Then we looked to see whether or not this patient could have possibly group 3 pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease. Since our CT scan didn't show any lung abnormalities and we did pulmonary function tests, which were normal, this effectively ruled out group 3 pulmonary hypertension. We also did a VQ scan, which was negative for CTEF, so that rules out group 4 pulmonary hypertension. And she also had a serologic workup where HIV, ANA, rheumatoid factor, were evaluated and they were all negative, along with drug screening for amphetamine use, which was negative as well. So based on these results, we effectively ruled out group 2, 3, and 4 pulmonary hypertension, and group 5 is really a diagnosis of elimination. So we thought that her hemodynamics along with the rest of her workup was consistent with group 1 pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thanks, Sasha. With all these results coming back, it's important to take a step back and look at the patient as a whole. One of the important things to remember about our patient is that she did spend a significant amount of time in Somalia as a child. So we did check serologies for schistosoma. And surprisingly, she had a positive IgG schistosoma test, which can be a cause of WHO group 1 pulmonary arterial hypertension. So at this point, we consulted ID. Dee, can you tell us a little bit more about schistosomiasis in pulmonary arterial hypertension? Sure. Schistomiasis is acquired when people come into contact with fresh water infested with the larval forms of the parasitic blood flukes. The microscopic adult worms live in the veins, draining the urinary tract system and intestines and can cause hematuria, bloody stools, and diarrhea. The infection is prevalent in tropical and subtropical areas, in communities usually without clean water or adequate sanitation. 
chronic infection can occur by granulomatous reaction to the eggs. All right, despite its higher prevalence compared to idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, relatively little is known about the underlying pathophysiological mechanisms of schistomyces associated pulmonary arterial hypertension, although different theories have been entertained. One is mechanical obstruction of the pulmonary circulation by the systematis eggs. Two, inflammation by the eggs causing endothelial dysfunction. Three, it can cause portal hypertension, which can lead into portal pulmonary hypertension. There is no targeted treatment approved for systematis associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. However, some studies suggest the treatment with quantal can reverse the vascular remodeling caused by systemiasis in at least in mice. However, the vascular remodeling present in systemiasis-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension has no point in return, beyond which the anti-helminic therapies that we use can prevent uh, progression of the pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thanks, Abdi. So ID saw our patient, and they recommended a course of praziquantel. They felt that although she had a positive serology for schistosoma, she had no other clinical and organ manifestations of schistosomiasis, which would be GI, liver, or splenic involvement. Therefore, they felt that this was unlikely the primary cause of her pulmonary arterial hypertension. It was also felt that even if schistosomiasis was the primary cause, Like Abdi mentioned, she was likely beyond the point of no return where anti-helminthic treatment would be effective. So at this point, based on the patient's presenting symptom of syncope and our right heart catheterization results showing precapillary pulmonary hypertension and the further workup, blood work and pulmonary function tests and VQ scan, our working diagnosis was one of idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. Sasha, can you go over the management of pulmonary arterial hypertension with us? I'd be happy to. As we remember, we performed a vasodilator study, which was negative. So calcium channel blockers would not be indicated for this patient. Our therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension target three different pathways. Initially, we have therapies that target the nitric oxide pathway. These medications include PDE5 inhibitors, such as sildenafil and tadalafil. The most common side effect of these medications is headache. Also, remember, these medications can't be taken with nitrates. Another medication that targets the nitric oxide pathway is riocirguat, also known as a dempus, which is a guanate cyclase stimulant that is commonly used in CTEF, or group 4 pulmonary hypertension. The second pathway that our therapies target are the endothelin receptor antagonists. These include mastitentin, bocetin, and ampersentin. One of the most common side effects of these medications are lower extremity edema. So we usually avoid or are very cautious with these medications for those patients that are volume overloaded. Also, you should not get pregnant when you're on endothelin receptor antagonists as they are teratogenic. The third class of medications are prostacyclins and their analogs. These include epoprosinol, ilopros, and troprosinol, all of which are available in either IV, subcutaneous, or inhaled forms. Some of the common side effects include headaches, nausea, and jaw discomfort with these medications. Also, a prostacyclin receptor agonist that we commonly use is selexapeg, 
which is available orally. So importantly, studies have shown that initial upfront combination therapy for advanced PAH is beneficial. So instead of just starting one class of these medications that I talked about and up titrating it, it's beneficial to start multiple classes of these medications and then up titrate simultaneously as tolerated. Our patient falls into WHO and NYHA functional class four as she's symptomatic at rest, requires oxygen. So initiation of all three of these medication classes should be pursued. So Sasha, thank you so much for going through the different treatment modalities that are available. Of course, patients like our patient here should be managed at expert centers with pulmonary hypertension, folks who do the stay in day out, right? There are a lot of nuances that are involved here. And, you know, you mentioned her functional class. I'll say that, you know, if there, if all the different prognostic markers for pulmonary hypertension, clinical symptoms, imaging markers like right heart status, lab markers like the anti-poor BMP, is that functional capacity is probably one of the most important prognostic markers here. So, you know, our patient not only has just really impressive pulmonary pressures, but she also has a pretty low functional capacity. So I'm glad that she's at an expert center having care with our colleagues up at the U. But she is a woman of childbearing age, and you know, cardiators were in the midst of a cardio OB series. And you know, one of my main takeaways from the series is how do you counsel patients with regards to preconception counseling and pregnancy planning? Because that conversation is with all of us, whether we're a primary care doctor or a general cardiologist or what have you. So, what what is the approach and recommendation there, Sasha? That's a really good question. The guidelines recommend that we advise patients with severe pulmonary arterial hypertension to not get pregnant. And if they become pregnant, they should be given the option of terminating the pregnancy since there's a high rate of maternal morbidity and mortality with rates up to 15 to 30 percent. Yes, Sasha, this is such a complicated and difficult area you know, to have these conversations. Of course, there's good reason given the high degree of mortality that you're citing. But you know, there, there are few things as strong as a desire to have a family for a lot of people. And so like with anything, counseling, informed shared decision-making is really important. A patient may understand the risks that are involved and say, look, like it's really important to me to have a baby. So I think from the perspective of the majority of the audience, it's important to recognize that this is an important conversation to be had with our patients. And if they so desire to have a pregnancy, one, to not walk into it without a preconception counseling and planning, but really to do this with a comprehensive expert cardio obstetric heart team that can support them through the decision and guide them safely through whichever path they choose. Because like with anything else that we do, we must make our decisions with our patient respecting their values, as well as recognizing the data and the guidelines. For more on this, we're going to get into a deeper conversation with Dr. Candace Silverside, specifically on the topic of pregnancy and pulmonary hypertension as part of the longer comprehensive cardio obstetric series. I'm really glad that you touched on this. It's so so important and the the onus of responsibility lies in all of us as we take care of women of childbearing age. So this has been a great case discussion. What was the case resolution here? What ended up happening with this patient and uh, what did you take away from it? Sure. So after her right heart catheterization, she was immediately moved to the ICU for IV prostacyclin initiation with epiprostanil. As you remember, she had a negative pregnancy test upon admission, so we were able to start mass attendin as well. Once her blood pressure and oxygen requirements improved, we also started to dalafil. 
After a week and a half of up titration of her medications, the patient could ambulate the hallways and was no longer requiring oxygen. She was doing well enough that we discharged her home on what we call triple therapy, which is the prostacyclins, an ERA, and a nitric oxide pathway medication. She followed up in clinic and her functional status has improved and she continues to do well. The thing that made my heart flutter the most for this case in treating this patient was the patient care that we were able to provide. I have to give a shout out to the intern on the service during this period, Hussein Magale, because without him, I don't think that this patient would have survived. Hussein is from Somalia and speaks Somali and talked with the patient every day about her care. He also had multiple family meetings with the family to discuss patient care and treatment. Without him, I truly believe that this patient would not have done as well as she did. And we were so lucky to have him on service with us. That's phenomenal. You know, this patient comes in with syncope, a harbinger of badness in the context of severe pulmonary hypertension that ended up being diagnosed as idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension after taking a detour through considering schistosomiasis, which I have to admit is not something I've thought of a lot of. So I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Ultimately, she had a phenomenal outcome at the hands of our colleagues at the U. So so thrilled to finally have you guys all on the podcast. I'd love to hear from you guys, what has it been like training at the University of Minnesota? So honestly, Amith, I had never been to Minnesota before my interview day. When I got here, something just clicked when I met the fellows and the faculty at the U, and I knew this is where I wanted to do my fellowship training. Everyone here is so accomplished and gifted, but there's this focus on who you are as a whole person, not just as a physician, clinician, or researcher. And our program director, Dr. Jane Chen, is a wonderful PD and advocates for the fellows. I'm originally from Minnesota, so it was great coming back to the U for my cardiology fellowship. The U is a great place to train, and I'm really excited to be here. There are a lot of great people at the U who are researchers and leading the cardiology field. So it's, it's great to learn from them. And it's been, it's been a great experience so far. So like I mentioned before, my husband, Tony, and I couples matched here to the physician scientist training program in cardiology. And this was the perfect fit for us as there is phenomenal clinical training along with research opportunities at the university. We see lots of interesting patients like the one that we just presented today. But we also see ECMO patients, pulmonary hypertension patients, heart transplant patients, along with LVAD patients. There are phenomenal research opportunities here. The University of Minnesota has a culture of innovation as the first pacemaker was invented here, along with the first open heart surgery was completed here. Julie, Sasha, Adisma, that was just a phenomenal case. We learned so much. Amit, myself, Ava, who's here listening on this case, and just all our listeners, they're going to learn so much from this case. And you guys are just a wonderful team at the U. And I just want to extend a special welcome to Julie Power as the ambassador for the Healy Cardio Nerds Honor Roll. Yeah, Ava, tell her. Welcome. And welcome to the University of Minnesota, to the Cardio Nerds family, and all of you. We cannot wait to join you this summer or maybe next summer, or whenever it is at the Minnesota State Fair to discuss more cardiology cases. 
And now for the ECPR by Dr. Prenz. I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Kurt Prenz, who is my research and clinical mentor. He is an NIH-funded physician scientist who performs translational research looking at mechanisms of right ventricular dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension. Well, thank you so much, Sasha, and it's a great pleasure for me to be able to join the Cardio Nerds group and talk a little bit about what is my passion, and that's pulmonary arterial hypertension. Really thanks to all of our fellows from the University of Minnesota who did such a fabulous job presenting this extremely difficult case. And I kind of wanted to highlight a few things and give you some of my opinions on thoughts on you know, what's the importance of what our workup is, what our treatment approach, what's coming up on the deck for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And, you know, as a cardiologist, I really want to highlight the importance of examining right ventricular function in pulmonary arterial hypertension patients. So let me start off with the importance of a workup. Now, for our patient, it was very unlikely that she would have had another WHO etiology of pulmonary hypertension. However, when you're seeing these patients in the clinic, you have to be very, very rigorous about how you're evaluating these patients. So as you most likely know, most pulmonary hypertension is due to left heart disease, either HEF-PEF or HEF-REF or due to chronic lung disease. So as a pulmonary hypertension doctor, I am doing a lot more than I thought I initially would, but understanding pulmonary physiology, which has been great. And then I still look at at echocardiograms for all my patients. I want to see what is their LV function. If their LV function is reduced, then it's a little bit easier. However, there are some patients that are kind of intermediate on a HEF-PEF or normal LV diastolic parameter. So when I'm looking at a patient, I say, what is their left atrium size? What is their diastolic function? And do they have comorbidities that would be consistent with uh, group 2 or PHU to HEF-PEF? I am in particular looking at obesity, type 2 diabetes, coronary disease, hypertension, and atrial fibrillation. If you start seeing a patient that has a few of these diagnoses, diagnoses along with pulmonary arterial hypertension, you have to really evaluate what you're doing and how you're treating them because unfortunately our therapies for PAH don't work for pH due to left ventricular systolic or diastolic dysfunction. So in this case, you saw a very nice thorough workup, which include our normal laboratory examination to rule out secondary causes, such as hypothyroidism or HIV. We did an echocardiogram to assess LV systolic and diastolic dysfunction, a ventilation perfusion scan to rule out chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, a high-resolution CT to look at lung pathology, and pulmonary function test. Now, this CTEF is something that becomes very interesting because the patient never had a history of diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism, but we know from the European registry that as many as a quarter of the patients with CTEF were never diagnosed with an acute pulmonary embolism. So just not having an acute pulmonary embolism does not rule out chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And that's really important for us to know because the treatment between PAH and CTEF should vary quite drastically. In particular, CTEF, the treatment of choice should be surgical or procedural followed by medical therapy. So getting that right is really important for your patients. So I think the case study showed a great example of how the workup was completed. And there was one interesting area that popped up on her workup, which was the presence of potential schistosomiasis. So 
This is not something we routinely think of in the United States, but chronic schistosomiasis infection is probably the leading cause of pulmonary hypertension worldwide because it is estimated about 200 million people are infected with schistosomiasis, and then approximately 1% of those chronically infected develop pulmonary arterial hypertension. So you really have to look out for this, especially if you're finding patients that came from areas of the world where schistosomiasis is endemic. And if they do have schistosomiasis, you can treat them for their disease with an antiparasitic agent. However, there are times when the pulmonary vascular remodeling is no longer reversible, so you can clear them of their schistosomiasis, but you still have to treat their pulmonary arterial hypertension. And if there's any fellows that are interested in learning more about schistosomiasis-associated pulmonary hypertension, there's a really great review article by Dr. Brian Graham published in CHEST in June of 2010 that you can look up. It was actually published online in July of 2011, but that is a really, really great resource for more understanding about schistosomiasis-associated pH. Now let's focus a little bit more on treatment approach. So there's some key things that lead us to decide how we're going to treat patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. So the number one thing that myself and my colleagues at the University of Minnesota look at is what is their right ventricular function doing and what is their cardiac output? So if you really think about PAH, it is really a cardiovascular disease because the outcomes in this disease are determined by right ventricular function. It doesn't matter if you use echocardiography or cardiac MRI. If you find patients that have right ventricular dysfunction, they're at high risk for having poor outcomes. And then if you find these patients, you need to be very aggressive in your treatment approach. Now, for this patient, she had a very low cardiac index, and she was started on IV prostacycline because out of all of our therapies, this remains the best therapy for PAH. And in fact, it is the only therapy that has a proven survival benefit in a clinical trial. So IV prostacycline is the best choice for people that have severe RV dysfunction, reduced cardiac output, and have limitations in their functional class. There are a couple other options that you can do. So the AMBITION trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago, and that showed that upfront dual therapy with a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor and endothelin receptor antagonist was able to have superior effects over monotherapy with either one of those therapies. And that was kind of a game changer in our field. So now everybody is treated with this approach upfront. However, we're starting to understand the natural history of the disease and there's a really wonderful article from the group out of Italy who's tracked their patients who were treated with dual PAH therapy up front and they showed that these patients do not maintain a low risk profile over a long course and thus you have to follow them and be more aggressive in their therapy. So then that obviously begs the question, should we do upfront triple therapy using a either a phosphodiester ACE inhibitor or a soluble guanylate cyclase activator to activate the cyclic GMP pathway, an endothelin receptor antagonist, and a prostacycline activator. So we did study this in the Triton trial. So that Triton trial was a trial that compared upfront therapy with Selexapeg, which is an oral IP3 agonist, so it stimulates prostacycline pathway, endothelin receptor antagonist, and PDE5 inhibitor, and compared it to dual therapy with just a PDE5 inhibitor and a ERA, or endothelin 
alpha-thalen receptor antagonist. So the results aren't out yet, but we're hoping to find out what the outcomes are of this are. There's also some interesting data from the group in Paris. So they have now a cohort of about 100 patients where they've shown in very sick patients, these are functional class three or four patients, they started triple therapy with IV prostacyclin, oral PDE5 inhibitor, and oral ERA, and they've shown, at least in our meetings, that they have a survival over 90% at five years. And that's really much superior to any survival that we've seen at this point with any of our registry where we're seeing around uh, 30 to 50% mortality at a five-year time frame. So I really believe that our field is going into a much more aggressive path as we continue to move forward. There's another very important thing to discuss in this case, and that is the potential of pregnancy while having pulmonary arterial hypertension. As Dr. Prisco commented, in general, we do our best to avoid any pregnancy. So that means in clinic, we're having talks about what's your contraceptive method. If you do get pregnant, what's our backup plan? And the reason is that not always, but frequently patients with PAH that become pregnant and get to the point of their third trimester and deliver have really poor outcomes. So when we're talking to patients, we have to talk about what are our risk and benefits of this and are they ready to potentially lose their child or are their partner potentially ready to lose both them and a child. So these are some of the difficult conversations that we do have but are very important. When we're having patients be on birth control, female patients, we are asking them to be on either a low estrogen or an estrogen, completely estrogen-free contraceptive to reduce the risk of thromboembolic events. So in this case, I think you got an idea of what we do for the initial workup, but treating this disease is really a chronic disease. So you have to follow these patients over a long time. So we have to think about what are we going to do next? We have to figure out how is this patient responding to therapy? And so to do that, we're going to look at our traditional measures such as exercise capacity. We're also going to redo a cardiac hemodynamic study to see what their cardiac output is, what their right atrial pressure is, and then we're going to do some type of imaging study to say what is their RV function doing. Interestingly, this patient being a female has a little bit of a leg up on our on her male counterparts because we know females have better right ventricular function than males in PAH and multiple other etiology of pulmonary hypertension. So she may be one of the people that experience what we say is the estrogen paradox, where females are more likely to be diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, but generally live longer than males. So, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to see this patient, reevaluate her, and we may risk stratify her with any multitude of risk stratification tools. There's the European Respiratory Society, and there's the reveal score that was developed by Dr. Benza to help you risk stratify your patients to decide what do we need to do next. And so what is next and what's coming, I want to give you guys just a little bit of a preview. So there's a new medicine called Sotaricept, and that has been one of the most impressive results in a phase two study. It showed it was able to reduce pulmonary pressure and reduce pulmonary vascular resistance without causing increased cardiac output. So it seems to have a pretty direct effect. And importantly, in that study, there were a lot of patients that were already on triple therapy with IV prostacyclin. So it does seem to be a therapy with high hopes in the future. Currently, that drug is being investigated in a phase three clinical trial. There's other 
more experimental therapies that you can do. So there's some emerging data coming out of both China and Europe showing that pulmonary artery denervation is a way to reduce pulmonary artery pressures and pulmonary vascular resistance in PAH patients. So this is certainly a new kid on the block and needs to be studied more intensively before we figure out where it goes in the treatment algorithm, but it does seem to reduce PA pressures by around five millimeters of mercury. If your patient continues to be highly symptomatic and has poor functional status, the end treatment for this disease would be lung transplantation, and you have to get in contact with your lung transplant team. This is certainly not a smooth road after the transplant because there are a lot of complications with lung transplant by itself. Pretend our patient wasn't a lung transplant candidate. We would have a couple other options for her, including an atrial septostomy. This is a us creating an artificial ASD to help unload the right ventricle. So the hemodynamics of this are that you're able to drop right atrial pressure, RV preload, by creating a right-to-left shunt. In addition to atrial septostomy, there is another procedure that has been used experimentally called a POTS shunt. And that's a shunt between your left pulmonary artery and your descending aorta. That can be used to help, again, offload the right ventricle by shunting blood from the pulmonary circulation into the arterial circulation. This may have some theoretical advantages over an atrial septal defect created artificially. Number one, that it reduces your risk of having an embolic stroke because your shunt is at the level of the descending aorta. So if you did have some embolic event, it would go to your legs instead of to your head. The atrial septostomy also frequently require repeat procedures. And if you did a potch shunt and it has been done percutaneously or surgically, that usually stays open and you don't have to to do that. So in summary, I think we've learned some really important aspects about the initial diagnosis and workup of pulmonary arterial hypertension, what our treatment approach is, what we do in follow-up, and how we're going to change therapy as we continue to follow the patient, and what is on the horizon for this disease. I think it's an exciting time because the treatments are getting better, and we will have a lot more options for these patients. And again, this is really an interesting disease from a cardiovascular standpoint because it is really all about the right ventricle. And the right ventricle is what determines performance in these patients. And so you have to keep a very close eye on that and tailor your treatment to its function. And then hopefully in the future, we'll have RV-directed therapies that will be able to complement our pulmonary vascular-directed therapies to augment patients' quality of life and improve survival. Thank you again so much for highlighting our program and be happy to entertain any questions that you have via Twitter. My Twitter handle is Kurt, K-U-R-T underscore Prins, P-R-I-N-S, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have that way. Thank you so much for including us. Have a great day. So 203, I think, is the number. 203, okay. And then normal. Oh my God, that's freaking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say the envelope was probably a little bit overtraced, but it's still super yeah. high. It's gonna- high. Yeah. <laughs> it's freaking high. I'm just laughing. Like, I'm like, what uh, the heck? The envelope was a little overtraced, then we went to uh, yeah, 180 pro- RV systolic pressure. <laughs> it was probably just 150, guy. Come on. That is that. That is correct, Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Yeah.